<laughs> well, hey, welcome. Good morning. My wife just turned to me and she's like, did everybody get the same memo to wear flannel? Yes. <laughs> we coordinated. You missed it. First service, uh, Jack Slichting. Exact same outfit, just a different shirt. Same shoes, everything. And I was like, looking good, bro. <laughs> Uh, Well, hey, welcome. It's so nice to be here with you all today. If you're new with us again, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors. And if you've chosen to join us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, We just got back. Eight of our staff went to Dallas, Texas for a week. And uh, we went to a conference through Right Now Media. How many of you have checked out Right Now Media uh, in here? Awesome. If If you're not familiar with it, it's a gift that we give for you guys. Right Now Media hosts They've got Bible studies and devotionals and amazing videos, and it's really good, but it's our gift to you free. If you go to the resource page, there's a code. How many of you have found those Bible studies to be really encouraging and helpful? It's a phenomenal resource, help you grow in your faith. I really encourage you to check it out. So we go to this conference, and it was Wednesday through Friday, amazing speakers, amazing worship. I mean, it was just so refreshing to be there, but the theme of it, and almost every speaker talked about this about what a difficult 18 months it's been for the church and for individuals. How many of you agree the last 18 months have been a little interesting, right? And uh, one of the things that I walked away with that was so encouraging in this was that God has been so faithful in and through the church. And I just want to give a thank you to everybody who calls Zion home, who has continued to be faithful through coronavirus, through shutdowns, through coming back and then going back down again and then coming back. Can we just give a big thank you to all of our leaders, our volunteers, all those who supported financially, and even just those who have been coming consistently. It is, and if you're new with us, if you're just checking us out, or if maybe it's you've been coming the last couple of weeks, I hope that you'll find a home here at Zion. This is a pretty remarkable church. And I am so blessed with our staff, um, our, our leaders, our volunteers. God is just doing some pretty remarkable things here. And, and so the last, I actually took two Sundays off from preaching. And last week, Pastor Derek, uh, who's our executive pastor, um, he, we had confirmation Sunday. We had 345 at second service last week. Yeah, we can give a, that's a praise God. You can clap for that. That's awesome. Um, And more importantly, Derek talked about Reformation Sunday. And here's what I want you to hear. The Reformation is not something that happened. It's something that's still happening. We should always be changing us in light of what we learn about God's word. The more that we study and discover who God is and what it means to follow him, we should always be changing. The gospel is consistent. We are not. (laughs) And so... As we're looking at this, part of why we've been doing this whole Galatians series is a reminder of who God is calling us to be. And then uh, before that, Jennifer Colby, our our adult ministries director, who Jennifer did an amazing job. Can we just give a big thank you to Jennifer? And um, I'm so grateful for my sister and the work that she's done in adult ministries and just watching how God is elevating and seeing people, men rising up, women rising up, things happening. And she preached on Galatians 2, this first part of it, and she kind of talked, really prepping us for today. Now, I want to give you a little backstory. We're doing this thing called Passport to Galatia. Galatia is the city in which the church in Galatia or Galatians existed. And as we're preparing for today, what we discover is that we're going to be talking about life. And this is one of the things that I so appreciate about the Bible, is the Bible is, yes, it's divine, but it's written by human beings. 
Now, sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we picture this book as like descending from a cloud and oh, right? And it's oh, and it's, that was horrible. Wow, it's, <laughs> that was so bad. You ever, well, I'm not even going to go there. All right. And what we forget is that the Bible was written by human beings inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to hear this. And if you're a person who likes to take notes or put them in your phone, I want you to pay attention to this moment. Do you realize that there's only been one moment in history that God did not partner with humanity to accomplish his will? Creation. That's it. The only time that God has not partnered with a human being or humanity to accomplish his will was when he created. And the reason was there were no humans. Even Jesus, what did God become in order to save us? Flesh. And so we read this book called the Bible, which is really not really one book, but 66 books. The word Bible literally means library. And it is a book that is first and foremost about God. But it's also a book written by human beings, and it shows their flaws, their brokenness. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes that when we read this book, we want to elevate. We want heroes that are human beings. The only true hero in the Bible is who? Jesus, not Peter, not Paul, not James, not John, not David, not Abraham, not Moses. The only hero is Jesus. And why do I say this? Well, if we understand that part of what makes the Bible beautiful is its humanity. It shows the humanness, the brokenness of even the most faithful of people. And we're going to get into a story today that Sometimes, and I'll tell you, I've been guilty of this, where we elevate and we kind of get into an us versus them, and we always want to find one person to be right and the other person to be wrong. And, and as we look at this, we're going to deal with an issue that every human, beals, every human being struggles with. It's called conflict. Everybody in this room has experienced conflict. Some of you experienced conflict on your way to church this morning. <laughs> conflict is part of being human. Now, I want to set this up, and I'm going to kind of piggyback, because this we're going into Galatians 2, but I need to re recap kind of where Jennifer brought us. So Paul is writing to this Gentile church called Galatians, and as he's writing to the church, there's this group of false teachers called Judaizers, and the Judaizers are Jewish Christians who are coming and telling the Gentiles, if you want to be saved, you first need to get circumcised. You need to become Jewish. You need to follow Moses before you can follow Jesus. And Paul's getting really frustrated because they are undoing all of the work of the gospel that Paul has been trying to bring to the Gentiles, that it is only through faith that you are saved. Now, Paul's story is he didn't have a conversion. I don't believe he had a conversion. I believe he had an awakening. Paul was Jewish and was persecuting the church, but he believed he was doing it for God, for the God of the Old Testament, for Yahweh, the God he believed in. And as he was persecuting the church, he really believed he was honoring God. Now, what happens is this. Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute the church when Jesus appears to him. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then at that point, Paul's eyes are covered. He gets this stuff over his eyes. He can't see, and he's blind for three days. He's led by the hand to a man's house where there someone comes and prays for him, opens his eyes, and he receives this calling from the Lord to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, 
In Galatians 2, Paul says, listen, I didn't go to the apostles. I didn't go to Peter or James and John immediately. I waited three years. And as I go to them, he doesn't go to them to get affirmed or to find out if he's right. He knows he's right in Jesus. He just wants to make sure that they're okay with the mission he's on. And he goes to them. And here's how he describes them. Now, people disagree what what Paul is meaning by this. It could mean he's kind of being, you know, he's confrontational. He refers to James and Cephas. Now, everybody say Cephas. Cephas is Peter's Aramaic name. Okay, now this is going to be important for the story. In the ancient world, you had multiple names. You had your Hebrew name, your Aramaic name, and your Roman name. Okay? So Peter's Hebrew or Aramaic name is Cephas. Everybody say Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Now keep that in your brain because we're going to get a whole bunch of people mixed in. And if we're not careful, we can get confused. Okay? So Peter is, uh, Paul goes to them and he meets with them. And they're like, listen, Peter, we are, uh, Paul, we agree with you. You are called to the Gentiles. So as you go to the Gentiles, we're, we're saying, that's good. Go do that. Peter, James, and John, however, feel called to the Jewish community. They want the Jews to know of Jesus. And so Paul gets sent out, commissioned with Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement, and his spiritual son, Titus, and they begin their missionary journey, and that's where they come to Galatians. Now, a few years later, Peter, wanting to see the work that God has been doing through Paul, goes to visit Paul in Antioch. And here's where we pick up our story. Now, before we get there, I want to do a little backstory on Peter because this is important for us to understand what takes place right here, right now. Peter was raised in a Jewish world. And as a Jew, Peter believed that Gentiles were the enemy. It was an us versus them. In fact, Gentiles were often called sinners. The the term sinner and Gentile were synonymous with one another. They were unclean because they ate unclean things. And Peter was raised in a sociological world in which Jews were good, Gentiles bad. Now here's what happens. Jesus has come to Peter and uh, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus appears to the disciples and they think he's about ready to start his mission now that he's resurrected. And instead, Jesus says, hey, says this, hey guys, I'm going to send you out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And what does this mean? Well, Jerusalem means the Jews. Judea is the outskirts of Jews. Samaria were half-breeds. And the ends of the earth means everybody else. Jesus just told Peter and the rest of the disciples, hey, I'm sending you out to bring the gospel to everybody, including the non-Jews. Here's the thing. Peter has a real issue with Gentiles. Now, this is about as close as we get to modern day racism in the Bible. See, in the ancient world, it wasn't about the color of your skin. It was about your ethnicity. See, a Jew could be black, brown, yellow, white, didn't matter. It was about were you Jewish or not? Romans, Gentiles could be black, brown, white, yellow, didn't matter. It was about were you ethnically Jewish or were you not? Now, in our culture today, we don't have a lot of ethnicism. It's not America versus everybody else. Most racism is based on color of skin. Here's what I want you to hear. At the heart of the gospel is racial reconciliation. Jesus came to unite what was divided, which is humanity. Amen? So therefore, we as a church should care about racial reconciliation. And, and this is actually important because we're going to get to this story in a minute in Galatians. So here's what happens to Peter. Um, God begins to work in this guy named Cornelius. 
Cornelius is a Roman centurion. And Cornelius is called a God-fearer. Now, what God-fearers are interesting, they're Gentiles, they're Romans who are intrigued by Yahweh. They didn't get circumcised. They didn't become Jewish. They probably read Torah. They went and checked out synagogue. They may have even gone to the temple courts, but they never became fully Jewish. They were just God-fearers. That's what they're called in the New Testament. Cornelius has this desire. He wants to know the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. And an angel of the Lord comes to Cornelius and says, hey, Cornelius, there's a guy named Peter in Joppa. And I want you to send three of your servants to go get him because I'm going to show you the way to God. Peter is hanging out at this guy's house, Simon the Tanner's house. And he goes up on the roof to pray. This is found in Acts chapter 10. Now, much like in the Middle East today, Jews pray three times a day. Peter's going up for his midday prayers. And all of a sudden it says he comes into this trance. Now, that's a little weird. I'm not going to lie. That's weird. I don't, I don't know what all that looks like, but he comes into this trance. And then the Lord shows him a vision. Now, at the heart of Jewish world and our world is food, right? Food is good. Anybody here like barbecue? <laughs> Barbecue's good. Food is, is, is central to people. Why? Because how much community happens around food? In fact, Jesus was criticized because of who he ate with. In fact, the food you ate made you unclean. So certain food was considered clean. Other food was considered unclean. God unveils this sheet before Peter. And on it are all kinds of food, clean and unclean. And they're all together. And the angel, the Lord, the voice of the Lord says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, surely not, Lord. I've, I've never let anything unclean pass through these lips. I'm a good Jew. I will not touch anything clean, unclean. There's nothing wrong with getting up. You can even kill an unclean animal, but you certainly cannot eat it. And again, the voice of the Lord says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Surely not, Lord. Now, Peter is a little dense. Like we noticed, through, Peter needs things in threes, right? He tends, to, he tends to put his foot in his mouth. He's kind of hard-headed. Anybody relate to that? Anybody need the Lord to say things multiple times to you before you finally get it? That's Peter. I, I resonate with Peter, right? And he goes, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean. I am clean. I'm a Jew. Again, the Lord says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And then all of a sudden, a knock on the door appears. And it's three servants from Cornelius, a Gentile, saying, the Lord gave a vision to this Roman centurion, Cornelius, our master. We need you to come with him because the Lord called you by name. And Peter goes and he shares the gospel with Cornelius. Cornelius becomes a Christian, gets baptized, whole thing. Next day, Peter's talking with his Jewish friends. And this is what he says. This is Acts chapter 11. He goes, the Lord showed me this vision with a bunch of food. I didn't understand what it meant until Cornelius, I went and met him. And here's what I realized. Do not call unclean what God has made clean. There is no Jew or Gentile any longer. If God declares you clean, you are clean. The food represented Gentiles. Now here's where the hope is it for us. If you've got sin in your life that you're still carrying around shame with, what God has declared as clean is not unclean. You are not unclean in Jesus. Amen? Like, y'all need to get up in here. I'm killing, you guys are killing me. Thank you. Like, <laughs> I just got back down from Dallas, man. People were like, yeah, preach it, right? It's a thing. Peter had this whole awakening to food. God loves to use the mundane to reveal the miraculous. 
God used food to open up Peter's eyes. Now, why does this matter? Remember, Peter was raised in an environment where essentially he hated Gentiles. If you weren't Jewish, you were bad. It was us versus them. In our world today, there's so much conversation around racial reconciliation, us versus them. Now, here's what I want you to hear. In Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate unifier. Not just around race, but around other things. Now, I'm going to share something. Some, you might be offended at this. Did you know that you can love Jesus and be a Democrat? All the Republicans are like, <laughs> no. Did you, wait, wait, did you know that you can be a follower of Jesus and be a Republican? What? Did you know you can love Jesus and be a Methodist and a Lutheran? And a Catholic. <laughs> Did you know that Jesus unites, that there is no black or white, male or female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free in Jesus? Did you know that? Jesus is the great unifier. Now, here's what I, I'm going to share real quickly one of my visions and desires. And, and I take this very seriously. And I want to tell you, this is a place we are going as a church. Now, we live in Iowa. I mean, the snow is not the only thing white in Iowa. Let's just be honest. <laughs> but... Here's the thing. We have people of color who live in our city. And I want every person of color who lives in our city, in Clear Lake, in Mason City, Ventura, Garner, wherever they might be, that when they come here, they feel like this can be home for them. Not because of white guilt. I don't have white guilt. I believe in a racially diverse and ethnically diverse church because the kingdom of heaven looks like that. When we get to heaven, we're going to see a broad palette out there, aren't we? And it's not just going to be a bunch of different shades of white. Like I, and I'll be honest, I'm more colored than most colored people. I got freckles, I got all kinds of stuff. The kingdom of God is diverse and beautiful, and the church should look like that, amen? And this is what, this, we're going to get into this. This matters, okay? This is actually the heart of the story of what's going on here. This is what is taking place in this story. And we're going to talk about something that nobody likes to talk about, conflict. And there are some of you in this room that hate conflict. I would argue that most people avoid conflict. And what I mean by that is you might avoid conflict. You'll do everything possible to not have it. And there are some people who really like conflict. If you, and if you know anything about the Enneagram, Enneagram 8s feel love by being in conflict. That's weird to me. But they do. People that are Enneagram 8s, like the way they know that you love them is that you're willing to have conflict with them. Now, whether or not you like to avoid conflict or you seek conflict, healthy people will always work through conflict. Did you catch that? Whether you're an avoider or a seeker, what makes you healthy is your willingness to work through conflict. And we're going to share, we're going to get into a story in Galatians chapter 2. It's just a few verses, but it's a verse, a couple verses, a story about conflict. And here's why I brought up what I said earlier. See, the danger is, is we'll read stories in the Bible and forget that these are human beings. That Paul and Peter are just as human as you and I are. And then we'll read the scriptures and go, well, that must be prescriptive. That must be how we're, what we're supposed to do in conflict. And I'm going to say something that I could be wrong. And I, I, I'm going to be honest here. I might be wrong. I might get to the Lord and God might go, nope, you missed the point, Jason. I don't think I am. We're going to see a conflict between Peter and Paul, and I actually think that Paul may not have handled it well. Even though Peter was in the wrong, I believe Paul may not have handled it well. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 2, verse 11. 
Now, here's what I, I want to remind us of. One of my pastors, um, a guy named Ray Davis, said this to me 20-some years ago. I still remember it. If you like to take notes, write it down. Conflict is inevitable. Battle is optional. Let me say that one more time. Conflict is inevitable. Battle is optional. The reason why we have conflict is we are human beings. And you know what all human beings have in common? We're all kind of messed up. We all have sin in our lives. We all have our garbage. And because of that, when two human beings come together, conflict is inevitable. But battle is optional. And so as we read this, we're going to be reminded of the humanity of two people. Now, why, do, why does most conflict happen? Well, conflict happens because someone is standing in the way of your goals. That's usually at the heart of conflict. You're frustrated because someone is standing in the way of your goals or desires or wants or needs. And that's not always bad. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It means that someone becomes an obstacle. And so you have conflict. Now, remember, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul has just talked about these Judaizers who are twisting and perverting the gospel. And Peter is coming to check it out. And Peter had this encounter with the Lord in which he was reminded or shown by Jesus that, hey, Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter. It's faith through Jesus that saves you, that there's no longer clean and unclean. It's just those who are in Christ. I literally just tried to scroll my Bible. I don't know. I literally went like this and went, and it took me a brief second to realize it don't work like that. <laughs> Human. Human. All right. Now, in, in fairness to Peter, we got to remember, Peter's still a work in progress. Anybody else in here a work in progress? Paul is still a work in progress. Anybody else here a work in progress? Okay, so Peter is coming, and here's what it says, verse 11. When Cephas, Cephas is who? Peter. Peter is Cephas, and I, I don't think it's an accident that Paul calls him Cephas. I think this is Paul's subtle dig at Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I actually read it like that intentionally. Did anybody read that like this? When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. No, I think Paul's kind of flexing a little bit. I do. I think Paul's kind of like, when Cephas came, I opposed him to his face. Now, here's the bummer. This is God's word. Like Peter is forever immortalized in this text by this story. Like you want to talk about social media, like this went viral <laughs> before viral was a thing. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James. Now, when it says they came from James, it's referring to the half brother of Jesus. It does not mean that James sent them. Rather, they were coming from Jerusalem, which is primarily Jewish. He's talking about the Judaizers. So Peter has come to hang out with Paul and the Gentiles. Remember, Peter had this vision about food that's clean and unclean, and he can eat it all now. And, and now Peter has this change of heart. His racial views were changing because of what God was doing. And now he's eating with the Gentiles. And he's not just eating with them. He's eating unclean food because Peter realized what the gospel meant. But here's what happens. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Here's what took place. 
Peter is eating. They're having a, a meal with the Gentile believers. He's eating pork, delicious, bacon, which is tove. It's all, he's enjoying it all. And all of a sudden he sees these Judaizers, these Jewish believers coming and he gets scared. And it says he moves up from his table and he goes and sits with these Jewish men out of fear. How many of you have ever found that uh, fear sometimes makes you forget faith? How many of you have ever made a bad decision and it was rooted in fear? I have. Fear has this way of helping us forget the gospel. And so Paul confronts Peter. Paul confronts Peter about what's just taken place. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, the one who went with Paul, was also led astray. Now, here's what I want you to hear. The real issue wasn't just that Peter got up and moved from eating with the Gentiles to go eat with other Jews. It's that his actions caused other Jews to get up and walk away and fall into the same trap. Now, for, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. Would you be a little frustrated? You've just spent talking about how these Judaizers are undoing your work, and here comes Peter, and you think Peter's on your side, and then Peter does the very thing that you've been frustrated about. Maybe Paul didn't react the best. Now, when we talk about this, I, to give you a picture of how this works, how many of you guys have ever seen the movie Mean Girls? Remember that movie Mean Girls, right? You got the lunchroom. You got the jocks, nerds, band geeks, drama people, all the other ones. That's, I went to a high school that was kind of like that, though we all ate outside because it was California and it was beautiful year-round, San Diego. Here, not so much. Not so much here. And this is, there's this division around class, and Paul calls Peter out on it. Now, Paul may not know all the story of what Peter's been through. Paul may not understand the work that's going on inside of Peter. All Paul knows is that he's frustrated. Now, how can I say that Paul handled this wrong? Well, I think if we look at Scripture, we see how Scripture tells us to handle conflict. Now, I also want you to hear this. Scripture is not a psychology or a counseling book. It's also not a science book. It's a book that tells us about who God is, who God's people are, about how God saves the world, about how we need Jesus. It is a book of wisdom. It does have points for living, but let's not confuse it with counseling. And so we're, over the next two weeks, we're going to be dealing with this text over the next two weeks. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about why we have conflict. Next, we're going to talk about how we deal with conflict. That's going to be great. There are some Bible verses that tell us how we should handle the heart of conflict. And actually, just a few verses later, after a few chapters later, after this story, Paul actually contradicts himself. But let me show you some examples of how the Bible tells us how to handle uh, conflict, disputes. And it's always with the heart of reconciliation. That's the desire. God wants to bring reconciliation and healing to the world. That's why Jesus came. And so as we look at this, here's point number one. And if you'd like to write down points, you can write this down. Point number one. All of us can forget the message of the gospel at times. And this is going to be important. Because if all of us can forget the gospel, it means that we should have some humility and gentleness on those who forget it as well. We should be willing to put ourselves in their shoes and be reminded that none of us are per perfect. Galatians 2.14. Paul confronts Peter. Here's what he says. 
When I saw that they, including Peter, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, who is Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Let's look briefly at other times Paul has had conflict. At one point, Paul and Barnabas, a little bit later, get into a conflict so big that they end up separating and not talking for years. This is Paul, super apostle, guy who can do no wrong, gets into a conflict with Barnabas so much so that they don't talk for many, many years. Paul confronts Peter. Paul's not afraid of conflict. I don't know if he liked it or not, but he certainly wasn't afraid of it. Why was he upset? Because Peter was acting less like a follower of Jesus and more like a follower of Moses. Paul's emotions come into play. Peter's sin was public, so Paul calls out his sin publicly. Paul calls out his behavior. Now, this is a dangerous path because I don't think this is meant to be prescriptive, but descriptive. And here are the texts that I want to show you that I think are important for us to remember. Jesus in Matthew 18 tells us that if we see somebody in sin, we go to them one-on-one. If your brother or sister is caught in sin, go to them one-on-one and say, hey, you've done this either to me or maybe you see other things. And then if they're not repentant, then you go and grab another brother and sister and you come together and talk to them. And if they're still not repentant, then you bring a third. See the motif here? You Multiple people. You go, but you go privately first. Did Paul go privately to Peter? He just called them out right now. There's, now here's the thing. Some commentators, because I don't think they like the idea of Paul not being better than the rest of us. Some commentators are like, well, maybe Paul went one-on-one with Peter early on. And it's just not written there. Eh, I don't think so. Maybe. Or Paul's just as human as we are. And Paul reacted in a human way because he was frustrated. That same verse, how many of you guys have ever heard this verse? Where two or more gathered, there am I also with you. How many of you guys have ever heard that verse? Everybody says that verse is about prayer. Did you know it has nothing to do with prayer? It has to do with conflict. Did you know that? So when somebody says, oh, we pray this verse for two or three and gathered. If that's the case, that means that you need at least another person present in order for God to hear your prayers. Last time I checked... That's not how prayer works. Actually, what's going on there in the ancient world, if you had judgment with somebody, if two people were in agreement that somebody was in sin, then God agreed with you. That's what that verse is about. Okay, that's a side note for you Bible nerds like me. Second verse. Jesus actually says this, and you guys might be familiar with this. Whoever has sees the speck of dust in their brother's eye should take the log out of their own eye. In other words, Jesus reminds us that before you confront somebody else on their sin, you should probably check your own sin first. Did Paul do that? No. Paul himself, a few chapters later, actually says this. This is Galatians 6.1. Four chapters later, Paul writes these words. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves so you also may may not be tempted. What if the reason why Paul wrote this story and then wrote these words in Galatians is because the Spirit began to work in Paul and reminded Paul, I didn't handle that so well. I could be wrong. I I don't know if I am. Either way, does it change the beauty of the Bible? In fact, I think it makes the story more beautiful, not less. I think as we see that Peter, Paul made an assumption about Peter's motives. Jesus confronted people publicly because Jesus knew the hearts of man. Last time I checked, Paul wasn't Jesus. Paul made an assumption that Peter chose to move out of fear. What if the reason why Peter moved away 
What if he got out? Because what if in Peter's mind, not saying he was right, he went, oh, my Jewish brothers are going to be here. I could be a stumbling block for them by sitting here. I'm going to go move over here. Could that be a part of the story? Maybe. We don't know. We don't get into Paul's, we don't get into Peter's motives. We just see the action. How many of you have ever gotten into conflict because you made a wrong assumption? Yep. <laughs> and so we read this story and what we're seeing is conflict is playing out and God actually cares about it. Now, Paul is not our model. Jesus is. Can I get an amen? And if Paul is not our model, Jesus is, then we can learn something. And maybe this is how we're supposed to handle it. But I think it shows far more humanity and the work of God in Paul's life. And also why we see a very different Paul in Galatians than we do in Colossians. Paul was a work in progress just like the rest of us. Um, now, here we come. There are three sides to conflict that I want to bring us into. And, and these three sides, uh, my hope is, is that they might help you realize that conflict is not just one directional and that sometimes the conflict first resides in you than it does in the other person and that that's important. And next week we're going to get into how we deal with conflict. This is why we have conflict. So here's the first one. First side of conflict. We all can forget the gospel. Our actions don't always line up with our beliefs. Every single one of us. There are times that I'm like, I know what I believe. I just don't act like what I believe because I'm human. And here's what the rest of, or the, the answer for that is humility. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humility is the willingness to recognize that you are a sinner still in need of God's grace. Next time you have conflict with somebody, come in with a humble heart. And if you don't have it, ask for it. Ask for God to soften your heart and to remind you. We come into self-evaluation. This is the log versus the speck. It's inviting the Lord to search and know you, to know your heart. Now, this is hard because sometimes conflict happens immediately. Like we don't mean to have it. It's just someone says something and next thing you know, you're in conflict. And that's when you need a holy timeout. Like go to your room, right? <laughs> just <laughs> go sit, calm down, right? But when you have time to work through conflict or in that moment, if the spirit is working in you this way, a little self-evaluation. But the next one is Philippians 2, 3 through 4, and that is, we need to look to other people's interests before our own. If most conflict is rooted in me not getting what I want, well, what happens when God begins to change my view and I start caring about what other people need before my own needs? And there's this beautiful imagery. My wife, Lisa, and I were coming up on 20 years of marriage in January. And thank you. Um, one of the continuing work that God has been doing in my life is that I'm trying to remember my wife's needs before my own, but here's the beauty. If she remembers my needs before hers, both of our needs always get met. And, and that's the secret sauce of marriage, okay? Show the kind of grace you would want to be shown when you mess up. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Show mercy on your neighbor as you would show mercy on yourself. Uh, side number two. There will be conflict. It's how we handle it that matters most. This is where Galatians 6.1 comes in. If someone is caught in sin, and that word caught means they've been trapped. Most sin, people don't choose it. They get trapped into it. You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Gentleness goes a long way in healing conflict. Paul certainly, I don't think, handled Peter very gently. But here's the third part. Healthy confrontation should focus on reconciliation for the sake of transformation. Let me say that again. 
Healthy confrontation should focus on reconciliation for the sake of transformation. If you go into conflict with the intention of being right, both sides lose. But if you go into conflict with the hope of reconciliation so that transformation can take place, and maybe that transformation isn't even in their life, it might be in yours. How many marriages could be saved if they approach conflict this way? Instead of saying they need to change, maybe it's the Lord saying, but, but what, what's your part in the transformation? How does God want to work in you? Because sometimes we're so worried about right, being right, we forget to be righteous. See, if you're focused on being right, both sides lose. But if you're focused on being righteous, righteousness is rooted more in being like Jesus than it is in being right. Last time I checked, Jesus called us to focus on righteousness, to be like him than to be right, including in conflict. Now, I want to end with a couple of things. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. So when do we actually have conflict? And there are appropriate times to have conflict. Uh, you, we can't avoid it. It is a real thing. And sometimes conflict is necessary. In fact, I would argue there is healthy time for conflict. First off, when the message of the gospel is at stake. When the gospel is being perverted, sometimes there needs to be open conflict. There needs to be disagreement. And you go to that person in love and saying, hey, I think you've messed up the gospel here. Uh, a few years ago, and I didn't share this story first service because we ran out of time, but um, a few years ago, I was dealing with some stuff in my life and I made a comment to a dear brother of mine, a guy named David Rubelin. He and I were on staff together at my last church and he's uh, now, in, I think he's an Anglican priest now. <laughs> And uh, I had shared, I felt like God was punishing me for sins. And he looked at me and, and I said, you know, God disciplines those he loved. And he very lovingly said, Jason, I don't know that your view of God's love and discipline is right. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, man, you, that's a fear-based motivation. Like, yeah, God disciplines those he loves, but man, it's, your view of God as father, I think has gotten a little skewed. That was conflict. He, he confronted me. And I, I had to come to grips with that. And I was like, maybe. And I think, honestly, I think he was right. Another time to have conflict, when someone is causing harm to others. One of the ways this happens is through division or fracture. Now, I want you to hear this. I am a pastor. My job as a pastor is to protect the flock. You want to see conflict real quick? Start dividing the flock. You want to see me as a pastor come and lovingly confront you to have conflict? Bring division into the church. Because there's no room for division in the church in Jesus' name. Amen? And how about in marriages? Uh, oh. You know how many marriages come in because you get somebody who doesn't love Jesus or maybe someone who does love Jesus but just isn't acting like it and they come in between a husband and wife to cause division? Someone needs to lovingly confront that. Amen? But key, the key word is lovingly. Because my sin is no different. It's no worse. Other times when you confront it's for abuse, physical, spiritual, emotional, sexual. There are all kinds of abuse. We need conflict to protect those who are oppressed and are broken. Those who are being abused, conflict should happen in those times. Other times when hurtful words or actions. And now, and I've, we've all had those moments where I'm not thinking about it and I say something hurtful to my wife and it's just, for me, it's just a passing word and, and it just hurt her soul. Now, that's not my desire. When I love my wife, I never want to hurt her. But we've all had that moment when you're in a conflict and the only thing you're thinking about is I want to infl inflict instead of have conflict. Did you catch that? 
I'm going to inflict as much pain as possible. And in those moments, I'm not acting like Jesus. And my wife, and I can tell you, we've had those times where she'll say, that hurt. And I've had those moments. My wife, neither of us have done this well. None of you do it well. Sometimes we say something that we don't mean. And we need to work through that conflict. Some of you in this room, your marriages are struggling, hanging on by threads because you haven't actually figured out how to have conflict well. Some of you avoid it and ignore it and the entire time your marriage is doing this. You think by avoiding it, it's all better. No, it's just getting further and further apart. But healthy conflict, when conflict is done well, it actually leads you to this. My closest friends, the people I trust the most, are the ones I've had the greatest conflict with. That's why my wife and I love each other so much. We've been through conflict. Not only have we been through it, but we've survived through it and we've thrived through it and we've become better through it by the grace of God and through a lot of work. Some of you need professional counseling to work through conflict. Sometimes it's not about reading the next Bible study. It's about getting somebody in there who can get to the heart of things for you and not be afraid to be confrontational for you. Next week, we're going to get into how. How do we bring the gospel into conflict? How did Paul bring the gospel into this conflict? And whether or not he handled it right, here's the thing. I think they were both right and wrong. I think they were both wrong to some degree, but Jesus is always right. And when you bring Jesus into conflict, it leaves room for reconciliation and restoration and beauty and healing. And I think there are people here who need this. Now, here's the challenge I'm going to give you next week. If you know somebody who's got conflict going on in their life, maybe your marriage is on the ropes. Maybe you have friends who are this close to divorce. Maybe you just have a friend, somebody that's so struggling. Invite them to come next week because it's going to be filled with a whole lot of hope. You know what our world needs? Hope. Our world needs a holy conflict to help them realize that it's Jesus who brings hope, not the world. Not pornography, not alcohol, not another woman, not another man, not another job. Jesus brings hope. That's where we find it. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? Let's come and worship the Lord. And let's come be reminded that we are part of something holy in Jesus.